Welcome to this week's podcast. My guest is John Edwards with a transforming story. John, welcome to Facing the Canon. Thank you so much, Jay John. It's great to be here. I'm thrilled you're here. Your story is a story of redemption. So let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a, pla- in a place called Clontarf in Dublin. It's about five miles north of Dublin city. In a very... Well, my father was uh, a very successful businessman, Catholic family. Uh, I've got four sisters and two brothers. And uh, my dad was the financial director of the biggest motor company in Ireland. So we were reasonably comfortable as a, financially as a family. And uh, yet uh, my dad, who himself came from a very difficult background, he was orphaned when he was very young, really fought to make something. And he was quite entrepreneurial, but he used alcohol to kind of uh, help him deal with stress. And he became a chronic alcoholic, which had huge reflections on us as a family. And uh, my mother, God bless her, she, she, had, um, she, she broke down a few times. The pressure of having seven kids and an alcoholic husband. Yeah, of course. And, and you at school, um, you had a stutter. I had a terrible... I was left-handed as a kid. Back, I was born in 1954, a long time ago. And back then in Ireland, they would, uh, if you were left-handed, they would force you to write with your right hand. So I was made hold a black rubber ball in my left hand at home as well, not just in school. And uh, psychiatrists tell you that, that sometimes if you force a child to change hands like that, they can develop a stammer. And I had a terrible stutter where I literally couldn't put two words together in school. Therefore, when the teacher, maybe you're doing a history lesson or you're doing an English lesson and they say, Edwards, John Edwards, what's the next word? I'm intelligent. I knew what the next word was, but I just couldn't say it, particularly if it started with a consonant, a P or a T or something. I just could not say it. So they say, up the front of the class. So sometimes going up the front, I'd, I'd stammer the word out and they'd say, you were prompted. And uh, I'd, the bamboo came would come out and I'd get maybe three or six of the best. Or I'd be made to stand in the schoolyard on a, a drain, uh, on a shore, a drain. And I'd have to stand there and all the classrooms were around. And I had to stand there like I was guilty, but I didn't do anything wrong. I just couldn't speak. So my self-talk became very strong as I stood there in that drain. And I could see other people looking out the classrooms at me. And I began to imagine what they were thinking about me. And low self-esteem became very strong in me at that time. You got involved with a group of other teenagers, started experimenting with some drugs. Yes. I remember the day I was walking down a road called St. Gabriel's Road across from the brand spanking new community centre. There was a, a gang hanging out by the community centre. Uh, the girls were prettier with them. They looked like they were having more fun than the gang that I grew up with. And I made a decision one day to leave the group I was with and go and hang out with these people. That decision had huge consequences to it because they were smoking cannabis, they were taking LSD, they were taking other drugs as well. And as soon as I began to ha- hang out with them, I began to take drugs as well. I loved Valium. My mother used to take them for the anxiety she had, the stresses of the family. And when I took a Valium one day, it, the trouble is it worked. It calmed you? It calmed me. The, not of anxiety, I could speak better. So I could go to the dances and ask the girl I fancied up to dance. You know, I could uh, talk to other people. I could do things I couldn't normally do. And then with a bit of booze on top of it, I was even more brave. And I learned how to build my character with the help of a drug and a drink. 
and I never built self-esteem or I never built my own personal character. I built it with the help of chemicals. And, and, then, and then the dosage increased. Yeah, one Valium worked at the beginning, then I needed two, then three. And believe it or not, Jay John, after 20 years, I was taking up to 150 Valium pills a day. Several years followed, you ended up homeless. How did you end up homeless? Well, it was a very sad journey. My friends and I became addicted to different drugs. And um, to detox, they used to put us into mental institutions. So I know what it's like to be in a padded cell and a straitjacket. And there was some abuse happened to me there as well, sexual abuse and physical abuse. So even though you were put into those institutions to get help, yes. it actually made it worse. I saw all kinds of abuse in these places. I, I, I could talk for hours about it, the abuse I saw in these places. So I, it made it worse then for you? Yes, it did, yeah. It, it was hard. These places were absolutely horrible. And one day, some of my friends began to accidentally overdose and die. And there was a group of 30 of us, there's only seven of us alive now. A lot of my best friends died and I couldn't handle it when my very best friend died. And I ran out of Ireland and I went to London thinking if I have a geographical change, things will get better. But I very quickly ended up on the streets of Piccadilly, the West End, where the drug scene was in the, in the early 70s. And uh, I very quickly ended up begging on the streets. Now listen, when I say begging on the streets, people walk past beggars on the streets, but each one of those guys has a story, or girls, they have a story. I come from a comfortable middle-class background. For me to actually make a decision to ask somebody else for money, I had to come to a very, very deep place in here in my head. You can adapt to living on the streets, you can adapt to mental institutions, but between these two things, between these two ears is where rock bottom happens. And I was, I was plummeting towards a very dark and deep rock bottom. And begging on the streets of one of those, was one of those things. I ended up overdosing at least 20 times accidentally been in comas for three and four days at a time, my breathing stopping. It's a miracle that I survived all of that. I tried rehab several times, but I never made it. I went to a rehab much far from here, actually, and uh, in 1982 in a place called Uxbridge. And, um, but I didn't make it. I didn't make it. I ended up back on the streets again and again and again. Suicidal thoughts were flashing in and out of my mind on a regular basis and I was worn out trying to fight off the temptation to commit suicide. Uh, I never succumbed to it um, because I always believed that one day things would be all right, but I wasn't quite sure how that was going to happen. So uh, that went on for a while, it, yes. like a one step forward, two steps back. Exactly. And then, so how did you then encounter Jesus and end up getting free? Well, I was staying, I got to stay in a, an old Irish uh, house for homeless people in Harlesden in Northwest London. And I got a phone call in there one day from my family. My, my, my sister told me that my dad had just died. Alcohol had killed him. He was only 63 when he died. And um, they said, John, we love you, but we don't want you to come home for the funeral. We're afraid if you come home, you'll upset your mum and the rest of the family. That broke my heart. D did they know that you were homeless? They knew exactly where I was at. They, they knew, knew I was hopelessly addicted because I had caused all kinds of ructions in my house over the years. And um, the morning my dad was buried was my rock bottom. 
I was down a back alley in Harlesden, northwest London, drinking and taking drugs with an old homeless guy. And my mind was drifting back to the Catholic church in Dublin where my father's funeral would be. And I began to cry. And the old homeless guy noticed. And um, my nickname was Irish on the streets. And he said, hey, Irish, what's, what's the matter with you? He said, I see tears in your eyes. I said, nothing. I changed the subject. And I talked about something else. But 20 minutes later, the drugs and drink was coming on more. I was thinking of my mum in St. Gabriel's Church where the, my dad's funeral was, and my sisters and the neighbours. They'd all be saying, oh, where's John? He's not at the funeral this morning. And I just couldn't hold the tears in, Jay John. And they just jumped out of my face and they just, they just ran down my cheeks. And that moment in my life was so, was so real. And I just thought to myself, what a mess I've made. What a, what a failure I am. What a total and complete mess I am. And I, um, I knew then that I either was going to kill myself and finish it all, or I was going to put an effort in to change my life forever. And I was just so desperate. And uh, the, old, the old homeless guy, you know, on the streets, there's a, I call it the fourth world. We look after each other on the streets. You know, and this old guy embraced me. He said, come on, Irish. And he hugged me. He hugged me, held me tight. He said, come on, you can get your life together if you just put the effort in. He says, go home, John. He said, if you don't, you're going to die in the streets. And I went home about a year later and I attended Alcoholics Anonymous. And I met some charismatic Catholic Christians there who were born again, they said. They didn't preach at me. They just lived a life in front of me. And they talked about Jesus, not just setting them free, but forgiving them. I had a lot of guilt and shame. Jay John, there's people dead today because they introduced them to drugs. I can't even tell you the mental somersaults I've had to do with all that stuff. The guilt, there's nothing like the shame of an alcoholic or a drug addict. And um, I went to one of their Christian meetings in August of 1987. And there was a man there who gave his life story. He was a former IRA guy who got born again. And I was impressed by his life story. So I went back again in September 1987. And during the worship, I began to call out to God. I began to say, God, if you're as real as these people are saying you are, you must have seen me. You must have seen me, God, when I was sexually abused, when I was physically abused, when I was begging on the streets, at all my friends' funerals, in the padded cells, in the straitjackets. You must have seen me with all my sickness. I said, if you're that real, God, please reveal yourself to me because I don't understand why I can't get free. And when I called out to God like that, suddenly, J. John, it was like the roof came off that building and the presence of the Holy Ghost came in and filled me from the tip of my head, the sole of my feet. I had a personal revelation. The Apostle Paul talks about in Galatians. I had a personal revelation of salvation. I knew when Jesus died 2,000 years ago, he died for John Edwards. And I knew my sin was forgiven. I knew it by revelation. And the, pre the power of God that hit me and I was shaking all over. And something came up from the pit of my stomach my neck all swole up and a dark like shadowy thing came out that side of my head. It felt like it was about 10 foot long and I got completely delivered and set free. And a while afterwards, I stopped smoking, drinking and taking drugs the same day. And I went into, I was the first Irish guy to successfully complete Teen Challenge in Wales. That is so encouraging that even though you had that incredible encounter where you experienced being born again, yes. they still said, right, we still need to support you. So go and do Teen Challenge. Yes. You know, I needed rehabilitation. Uh, God's a God of order. And addiction was just the tip of the iceberg. I had so many wrong patterns of thinking. I have so many selfish habits. I had so much anger, I had so many uh, issues that I hadn't dealt with that I needed to get into Teen Challenge for 12 months. Not six weeks or eight weeks, for 12 months. That's what it takes to change. I was 24 years abusing alcohol and drugs. 
and addicted. It took me 12 months to get to a level of consistency and freedom. And then when I finished Teen Challenge, um, um, I waited for a couple of years even before I went out with a girl because I needed to live as, an, as a single man under God consistently. Uh, I needed to live in freedom on my own before I even thought about having a relationship with anybody. Yeah, absolutely. In this interview, John, we're trying to somehow express decades of your life. Yes. And that's why I really enjoyed reading both your books, Walking Free, which is really part one of your testimony, right. isn't it? Yes. And why did you choose Walking Free? Because when I finished Teen Challenge, I wanted to reach the nations. I had no money or a car, so I walked the length and breadth of Ireland, the length and breadth of Wales, the length and breadth of Britain, and I walked and cycled from Los Angeles to New York preaching the gospel. So I was walking free. Totally free? Yes. And this would be your for part heaven's, two? For heaven's sake. For heaven's sake. Now, why did you choose that title? I chose that title because many years ago, going through a tough time as a Christian, uh, I really called out to God one night and I had a visit to heaven for three hours where I met angels. I had the most incredible, life-changing experience when we went to heaven for three hours and that story is in that book. Are you able to sum that up for us? What, what happened? What did you well, see? And an angel came uh, to me and... Um, it sounds incredible, but he, he opened the side of heaven and I could see earth and I could see people falling into hell. I could see young men and women falling into hell and nobody was telling them, nobody was telling them. And I said, why won't somebody tell the people that they're going to hell? And then I heard a voice of God. Now this took three hours, but I'm only sharing in 30 seconds. Then I heard a voice from deep heaven saying to me, John Charles Edwards, take the gospel to the lost and take the cross to my people. John Charles Edwards to the Gospel of the Lost. And I was shown many other things. I didn't see Jesus, I didn't see streets of gold. I just had an incredible encounter with the deep, unexplainable presence of God. And the call of God came upon me personally and I woke up knowing that I had to preach the Gospel for the rest of my life. I've just spent the last three weeks, J. John, yeah. on the streets of Ireland, giving out hats and gloves and sleeping bags, buying food for the homeless and the addicted, living on the streets with them. And I live on the streets, I live in the doorways with them. I help them, I, 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 I get asleep, but my wife comes with me sometimes and we, we live on the streets and we help these people, we lead them to Jesus. I put them into hostels, I give them sleeping bags, make sure they're warm on the streets, and then I get them into rehabilitation. My wife, Trisha and I, we've taken dozens and dozens and dozens of people into our home, detox them of heroin and crack cocaine, antidepressants and antipsychotics, and got these people. That's what we do with our life now. John, honestly, I, I'm speechless. Uh, not only uh, as your book title says here, Walking Free, but your passion to see others go free. John, what would you say to any of our viewers and listeners who are struggling with addiction? What would you say to them? I would speak to you lovingly, but strongly as well. And I would tell you that there's, there's no such thing as a hopeless case. And uh, stop being a victim. You know, I'm not a victim of abuse and don't you be either. Take a personal decision today to make a difference in your life and you can do that. The only and the best way of doing that is to say, Jesus, come into my heart. Please forgive me of my sin. Heal me of my brokenness, my guilt and my shame. 
Jesus, I give my life to you. I declare you as my Lord and Savior. I renounce addiction and everything of the devil. And I declare today a new day. And if you invite Jesus Christ into your life like that and let, let J. John know that you've done that, we'll be praying for you privately. God knows the plans he has for you to give you hope in the future. You know, if Jesus was Irish, you know what he'd say to you? He'd say, sure, it'll be grand. Everything is going to be fine if you invite Jesus into your life. It doesn't mean you won't have battles, but he'd be there with you. And God's going to give you an amazing future. And we'll be praying that God will absolutely bless you. Thank you so much. John, if anyone wants to do that now, would you lead them in a prayer to make that possible? Absolutely. Please pray this prayer with me and mean it with all of your heart. Because God so loved the world, he sent his only son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. So please pray this prayer with me out loud, wherever you are, and mean it with all your heart. Pray like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died and shed your blood for the forgiveness of my sin. Jesus, please forgive me. I give my life to you. I give you my past, my present, and my future. I declare today that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, we pray that you will know Jesus is cleansing, Jesus is healing, Jesus is presence on you and in you and with you. And we pray for your protection. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you did pray that prayer with John, can I encourage you, read the Gospels in the Bible. Get a Bible if you don't have one and read Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and listen, read the words of Jesus and find a church community that can help you grow in your faith. The thing I like about you, John, is, is I love your enthusiasm. I love your passion. I love your creativity. Uh, one of the things you created was this giant syringe. Yes. Which I've seen and I've actually sat in. Yes, Tell us did. about that. Well, when I walked along the breadth of the country, I realised that by doing creative things, I could reach a lot more people. So, for example, when I walked the length and breadth of Britain, I carried a six-foot syringe. That in the middle of the syringe, I had prayer requests. And that was great. But then I began to think, I could do it bigger. So I dreamt of this idea of making the biggest syringe in the world. So I made a 33-foot long syringe. It's six foot in diameter. It's got a bedroom in it. And um, written on the side of it was injecting hope into society. So we inject hope into society now instead of injecting dope into society. And um, we have brought that through the length and breadth of Britain and Ireland. And we have led literally thousands of people to Christ with it. I've had drug dealers sitting inside my syringe. How ironic is that? Giving their lives to Jesus in tears inside my syringe. You buried yourself. <laughs> yes. When did you do that? Well, I've had to bury a lot of people over the years. And a few years ago, I buried a young guy called Paul that I had led to Jesus. And while I was doing the funeral, I was lowering the coffin into the grave. His wife and two kids were sitting there and uh, they were crying because their daddy was dead. 
his mum and dad were over on my left and they were crying because their son was dead. And I just looked at the top of the coffin as it's lowering into the grave and I thought to myself, what an idiot you are, Paul. You wouldn't listen to the wisdom we gave you while you were alive. Now it's too late. What will you say to your children now? What would you say to your wife or your mum and dad? Would you apologise? What would you say from the grave? And I felt the Holy Spirit saying, you do it, John. Do what, Lord? You make a coffin. So, cut a long story short, I made an eight foot long coffin that was three foot high, a meter high and a meter wide. And I buried it six foot underground in Halifax in England, where I now live. And um, I lived in the coffin. Now, it wasn't any ordinary coffin. It's got a, it's got a, it's got a mattress. It's got a electricity and fiber optic broadband in my coffin. So I have a GoPro camera in front of my face and I live streamed. And we reached um, 28 million people because it got in Good Morning Britain, got in the Jeremy Vine show, Vanessa Feltz, different countries got a hold of it. So in total, I've been buried six times for three days each time. And um, it's gone live in Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, Australia, India, Africa, the Eastern European countries. It's been on Good Morning Britain a couple of times. So you're in the coffin, buried down. Yep. And you're talking to people. So it's interactive. So there's people uh, FaceTiming me, they're Skyping me. So we have 15 live suicides phoned in and by the grace of God, we were able to lead every single one of them to Jesus and they threw away their pills or their blades where they were gonna cut themselves. We led them all to Jesus. And we had, um, uh, we had at one time up to 20 calls coming in a minute. It was overwhelming, it was too much for us to manage properly. We had six media outlets in China get in touch. It just went, it got far bigger than I ever realized. And it's a crazy idea. But you know, when I became a Christian, people tried to make me into a normal person. But I've never been normal, I've always lived on the edge. And I said, please don't try to make me into a normal Christian. I, I, I've, no, I've never been normal, I have no intention to be normal in the future. Let me express myself in the crazy way I always did. And so, yes, I've lived in a coffin six times for three days, but boy, was it worth it, it was great. But you've also walked in America um, from, you cycled, walked from, from LA to yeah. New York. I made an 11 foot long cross. And um, I started off at Santa Monica on the Pacific coast, on the wooden pier there outside LA. And I walked, uh, didn't have the money to do it. We do everything by faith. I walked, uh, from Los Angeles to New York. Uh, we cycled during the de during the, in the desert bits and stuff like that. But we, it went live all over the States. It was in, uh, there was people stopping in their cars, getting out because I had this big cross, they were falling on their knees. They were hearing me on radio and TV. And uh, hundreds and hundreds of people were giving their lives to Jesus. And it was one of the most extraordinary things I did, but I began to feel a bit sick during that time. And, uh, and then what happened? You, did you... I collapsed a couple of times. Um, and I'm, discovered that you were quite sick. Yeah, I came home, I went to the doctor. I had three cancerous tumours on my liver from hepatitis C, from dirty needles back in the day. And I had to shortly afterwards. So it's a miracle I actually finished that. Just pure, stubborn Irish perseverance. But I got a liver transplant um, 17 years ago on the 11th of May. And you got a liver transplant pretty soon after only, you needed it. I only had, they gave me four months to live, J. John. And um, I, I wasn't afraid of dying. 
It's amazing, you know, when you face death like that, it's a grace, it's a grace came on me and I had to manage it. But I really felt God had something more for me to do. <clears throat> and when I was in hospital, um, I was praying and uh, in an hour and a half under the doctor's noses, the cancerous tumours vanished in Edinburgh Royal Infirmary and the doctors to this day cannot explain it outside of it being a miracle. But the doctor said to me, my liver was in such bad condition with the hepatitis C that they decided to give me the new liver anyway. So I have a new liver. I've literally been delivered. You, okay. you have been, haven't you? Yeah. And you prayed for a wife and there's a lovely story about you driving and then sensing yeah. that you should tell us about that. Well, I was very careful about getting married. And I met a girl before I met my wife and it just wasn't right. It wasn't the right person. So she didn't want me to be an evangelist. So I finished that even though I had feelings for her. We can't be led by feelings, you gotta be led by God. So I prayed, I thought, I read, I read a book called The Fourth Dimension by Yongi Cho. And I talked about praying specifically. So I wrote down 22 things I was looking for on the woman I'd marry. So number one, she had to be a Christian. Uh, number two, she had to be a little bit pretty, you know, I'm a healthy guy. And um, it, I, I wanted her to be a girl who would love me for who I am and would support me in helping the homeless, helping the addicted, even be able to take murderers into her home and help people like that. And um, uh, I wanted to be a great administrator, because I'm not. And I wrote down some very practical things. And that we could have an adventure together. So one day I'm driving through a little town in Scotland where I lived. I was running a rehab up, up there for Teen Challenge. And I'm driving through this town called Largs. And I felt the Holy Spirit speaking, saying, stop the car, call into the little Nazarene church in the corner. So I did. And I went in, there was a coffee morning on, Saturday morning. This girl gave me, she went in to make a cup of coffee. So I'm looking into the kitchen because when you're single at 40 years of age, every girl you meet is a, is a potential for, is a potential wife. So I'm looking and I thought, no, she only, the first girl only had about six things. So the other girl was more, <laughs> more interesting. So they came out, you said, you're Irish. What are you doing in Scotland? I said, oh, I run the rehab over on the island. Oh, well, that other girl was Tricia. I fell in love with her. We became friends for a year. And then before I even held her hand, before I even kissed her, I asked her to marry me. Yes, but you thought you were going to ask her out on a date. Yeah, I was going to ask her out on a date, but I blundered. I was, I'm quite shy, actually, believe it or not. I'm quite shy in some ways. And I meant to ask her out on a date, but I just fell over all my words. I, I, made, a, I, made, I made a mess of it. And I said, listen, I've fallen in love with you, Trish, and I want you to know, will you marry me? And she smiled and said, I'd love to marry you. And we got married a few months later. We're married 25 years now, happily married. We've and, got a great marriage. And partners in life and in ministry. And in ministry together. There's that phrase, John, a trophy of God's grace, and you certainly are a trophy of God's grace, of his Thank redemption. You. You've been ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, and you're just passionate about seeking the lost, helping the broken. And it, it's wonderful to know you, John. Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. And thank you, Jay John. It's a real privilege to be here with you today. It's a dream come true. Thank you. Thank you so much. I hope that has inspired you. It truly has inspired me. John has been ransomed, healed, restored and forgiven. And so can we. I hope that's given you a faith lift. Thank you so much for joining us on Facing the Canon. Please join us again. One doctor developed the world's first vaccine. One civil rights activist helped to end racial segregation in the USA. 
One botanist developed new farming practices supporting impoverished farmers. One former slave escorted 300 others to freedom. One watchmaker saved the lives of 800 Jews and refugees during World War II. One politician persisted to see slavery legally abolished in the UK. Faith, love, generosity, sacrifice, perseverance. Heroes of the Faith, the new coffee table book by J. John. Available now at canonjjohn.com.